You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So, Psalm 145. Now, this is a quite a special psalm, actually. We're coming to the end of the whole Psalter, but this is the final psalm that is attributed to David. We're in a little series of the, these psalms attributed to David. This is his final psalm in the whole Psalter. So as we think back of all the psalms that we've looked at through this study for however long we've been in the book of Psalms now, all the ups and downs of David's life, we've seen him when he's been in sort of pits of despair, we've seen him on his highs and his lows, and now we can consider this, the end of his life, most likely, or his, his time anyway, in his age, age years, we get to see the lessons that he's learnt. So this is very much like how would he reflect on everything that he's been through in his life and in that way they're very instructive for us. These are his final words to us and thus it's no surprise really if you know the character of David that this is one of the greatest praise psalms in the whole Psalter. In Jewish liturgy they still recite this psalm three times a day and this is the place that it holds in their thinking because it is just a great psalm of David. You'll notice in the heading it says a psalm of praise of David. This is, I think this is the only place where you get praise actually written in one of the headings of the Psalms and that's the, the word Tehillim in Hebrew and that is what the Jewish people refer to as the book of Psalms, the book of praises, quite literally is what it is in Hebrew. So let's do the first three verses and we'll just work our way through this. He says, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Wonderful opening three verses. So he starts off, I will extol you. What does that mean? To extol someone is to lift them up by the words of your mouth, lift them up by honouring their character, to praise them basically is what it is saying. And it also has the idea of doing it so that it can be heard from afar. So this is not necessarily just referring to shouting really loud so people can hear you, although it does include that meaning, but more in the sense that it's such a continual, if there is a place, if you imagine a place that just continually has praises going on, there was just good things being said about one particular person, whether people are in their house or in church or in wherever they may be, it will, that area will get a reputation. It'll be known far and wide for one particular thing like many towns are known for one particular restaurant or attraction. What he's saying here is that the the idea is that a a believer, David, wants it to be like that with him. He is just known from afar as someone who gives praise to God. He extols my God. And I like the way he phrases it, my God there, a very personal relationship that David had. And I find this quite, uh, I I like this. If If you know David throughout the Bible, he made some real howlers, didn't he? I mean, he got things really wrong on quite a few points on occasion, but yet still he has that relationship with the Lord where he can say, my God. And that's quite something, that is. That's the grace of the Lord there. It's not just the God of Israel. This is David's God. And then he says, oh, king. He's my God, but he's also my king. And this is just a wonderful declaration of God's ultimate kingship, his sovereignty over the whole universe. And it's an amazing thing something I believe we can't even fully comprehend to this day, but we know he is the king. And this is, I would say, a more meaningful statement because this is coming from the king of Israel himself. David was the king of Israel. So the king of Israel still here is saying that he knows there is 
the king of all kings who is above him. He says, I will bless your name forever and ever. David's heart is engaged in the continual and voluntary duty of blessing and praising God. And that is just such an instructive example. If you think about where we are in David's life, all those years on the run, in the caves, people trying to kill him, the kingdom being stolen by his son, all these just different ups and downs, these, these trials and tribulations that he's had, and he still commits here that he will bless the name of the Lord forever and ever. And really, it's an example. It's quite challenging for us. What excuse do we have not to do that if, if David can do this? It's, it's a hard concept, but it's one that we take great pleasure in. I will bless your name. He's basically saying, I will do it now, I'll do it in the future, I'll do it in all time, I'll do it in eternity. And that is literally what he will be doing in eternity. Verse 2, every day I will bless you. Now for the believer, I think the idea here is that every day we wake up, we, we receive blessings from the Lord. Every day when we wake up, we are blessed just by our position in Christ, to be frank, and our spiritual blessings that we're given, let alone all the blessings that we may receive throughout the day and even just the idea of the physical things that we have around us that we can be blessed. But the idea is, as we are people who are recipients of blessings from the Lord, we should thus, you, we should thus be people who are blessing the Lord every day in return. That is what we do. It's our duty to bless the Lord. And that is how you get known far and wide for being someone who praises and blesses the Lord. You do it daily and you do it constantly and it is the overflow of your heart. Now the language here I think is conveying the fact that the praising is to be in relation to the magnitude of the one being praised, if you understand that. And that is from verse 3 I'm getting that. You see, with God, the praising must be continual. It must be today, it must be now, it must be into eternity, because that is a reflection of God's greatness. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will be the great God all through time. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. You can always, again, sense here, unsearchable is a, a funny word when you're talking about greatness, but the idea is it's just a wonderful statement that is implying however well you know the Lord, however well you think you've understood this concept of the greatness of the Lord, the supreme king who's sitting on the throne and all his power, his majesty, his might, his glory, however well you've seen that revealed in the scriptures, I think what it's saying here is there is always more. Like, it's unsearchable, it's unending. You, you, us, in our own finite minds, will never fully comprehend that. It's just so large. And that is a very comforting concept, I find, when you think that he is the final sovereign and king of the universe, that his greatness is unsearchable. What a king to have on the throne. And this, I believe, should really be one of the reasons that motivates this unending chain of blessings and praise. That's why I believe this, this call to be praising the Lord for all time is finished with this verse 3, with this declaration that his greatness is unsearchable. The two things are very much related. This should be the heart and mind of a believer, because that will ultimately be our future, as it will be David's too. We will be praising him in eternity. But yet we also know how often we allow the world to steal our praise, don't we? Um, you have tough days, you have bad times. Um, that's just really when the flesh comes in and bites you. Uh, you find yourself not turning to praise the Lord. You find yourself turning to hold back other things that you might be thinking in your mouth or in your, in your heart. And the world just has this way of pressing in us. It's a broken world. But this is when we need again to come to that understanding that his greatness is unsearchable. And we need to search out again the greatness of the Lord as revealed to us. 
there are many different reasons why our, why our praises are taken from us in this world. A lot of it is to do with our own sin nature, our flesh. Sometimes it's body or physical ailments. I always think this, I, I get a lot of migraine. Sometimes when I'm down with a migraine, it's, it's so hard to even concentrate to pray when you're like that. And it always makes me think of people, these great saints that you read of who have these lifelong afflictions, but yet they still end up doing these amazing things. It always just amazes me how people do that. For other people, it's maybe the temporal goals. They're too much focused on trying to gain things in this life. For some people, it's sinful desires that they cannot get victory over. We all have our things, but the greatness of the Lord will overcome. This is the life. This is the life. If the life of David proves anything, it's that his grace and his greatness are unsearchable, and they can handle all of the things that we may do if we bring them to him in confession. Now, what I like to do as I was reading this, I couldn't help but think of the contrast that you find in these three verses here with the, of a godly, David representing a godly desire and the desires of the wicked. And it's that little phrase, I will, that jumped out at me. If, you're, if you know that phrase, I will, let me read to Isaiah 14. These are the five, what are famously known as the five I wills of Satan. He said, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. This is speaking about the sins that led Satan to Satan's fall. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recess of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So you see in all of those aspirations a desire for praise, a desire for power, a desire to be the big chief, to be the one that is receiving all the worship and the praise. That is pride, basically, the root cause of pride there. They are the five I wills of Satan, and you could say that they are replicated by people in this world who are lost and in many ways are following those desires in this world, seeking those things in some way or another. But contrast them with David's I wills here. I will extol you, I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, I will praise your name forever and ever. What a contrast. One seeking to be seated on the throne, one seeking to just give praise to the one who is worthy to sit on the throne. That is a great contrast between the, the godly and the ungodly. I will praise your name forever and ever. Verse 4. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. So one generation shall praise your works to another, passing on this faith that we have, this praise, this blessings that we do every day to the next generation is the way that we ensure a continual chorus of praise. That's the idea here. Our faith is not supposed to be a stagnant faith. The thing about Christianity, it's a reproducing faith. It's supposed to go on from generation to generation. And it will, as long as the church is here on this earth, to be frank. It will go on. But sometimes it's not. <laughs> we make the mistake. We don't pass everything we should on to the next generation. And I believe this is actually just a discipleship issue. If you think about the call that we have as either Christian parents or Christian educators or just being Christians within a world and a field where we're surrounded by non-Christians or we're surrounded by people that we could influence for the gospel, it is our call to pass on what we know. 
And I believe this psalm is saying one of the ways you do that is not necessarily saying get into a debate with everyone and try and you know, hammer the Bible down their throat. Simply just using the language of praise can be the way that you do this. We are a people of praise. That is what we do. I bless you continually forever and ever. Isaiah 38 verse 18 says, If the living one, it is the living one who gives thanks to you as I do today, and a father tells his sons about your faithfulness. In that context, it's the family relationship that we pass on the praise to. 2 Timothy 2.2, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In that context, it's talking about the teaching and the understanding of doctrine. But these are all just elements of things that we pass on that are all part of the total package that we have to have if we are going to be a praising people. I think those who have a low view of doctrine will actually have a low praise, if I understand that rightly, because those two things are very much connected. The greatness of God is unsearchable. To understand the greatness of God, you have to really peer hard into the revealed nature, character, and will of God as revealed to us in the Scriptures and ultimately in the person of Christ. And that will make you praise, as we've seen many, many times throughout these Psalms, after a dramatic declaration of some mighty act of God, some wonderful thing that he's done, people are left praising or worshipping. We just looked at that in the throne room of God, didn't we? The 24 elders falling down on their knees, casting their crowns before him, saying, you are worthy, O Lord. That, that's the sort of attitude we're talking of here. This is the language of praise. And we are to pass on that faith by praising God. And this is also an aspect where we, we can't discount the impact of music. One thing that the church has been known for since it begun, really, and into the, the Judaic heritage that it has before the church begun, is music. Whether it be chanting, whether it be different forms of music, it's always been in the church. The church is a musical people, always has been. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And notice these two things are very much connected. To ha actually have psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, I would imply you don't just need music, but you do need music, but you also need that first thing that it says in that verse, you need a heart that is overflowing with the word of God. The word of God is literally dwelling in your heart to the point that it's impacting your thoughts, your emotions, your speech, your language, and thus your praise. And you burst forth in song. You and that looks different for a lot of different people. But there is a reason why the church has been involved in music since its inception. And it will be, I believe, into eternity. He then says, declare your mighty acts. Declare your mighty acts. So this is all that God has done and all that he is. This is encouraging for a new generation to hear of what has happened in the past. We love reading biographies, don't we, of these old bits of history. I share, often I share bits of history of amazing things that has happened in the past. It's extremely encouraging, and I think it's encouraging for all. However, it's also encouraging when we see and hear God working in our present midst as well when we see him doing these same sorts of things. It's encouraging for the older generation, I would say, to see that God is still working in the younger generation. It's encouraging for the young people to see that God is what God has done in history. And together, because of these things, we unite again in praise. We are a, a people. Think of that introduction. Every day I will bless you for now and forevermore. That is the life of David. That's what he's testifying to here. It says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. 
Now notice the accumulation of descriptions here. They're almost just piled on top of each other as, the, as David here is trying to just find the language to express his thoughts. It's not just the splendor of your majesty, it's the glorious splendor. You try and think about what is splendor, it's quite hard to actually come up with a definition, but then think about what is glorious splendor then as opposed to what is splendor. The idea is that he just cannot really find the right words that describe what he is trying to get across to you with what language will allow and how often do we see this in the Psalms? And for me, it comes back to that principle, his greatness is unsearchable. Sometimes I think language will fail you to try and describe a, a great God, particularly in that way. The psalmist was full of the thoughts of God. They were his praise and his delight, and they occupied his mind. That is what we, we mean when we say meditation there. He's meditating on the splendor, the majesty, the character of God, and all the things that he's done they are consuming his thought life, basically. And I don't know about you, but I find the thought life is often where you fall first. Do you have that? Like, I, I, I get that. If, you're, if, if you end up falling badly, it's usually because you fell in your, full, your thought life and you didn't check it somewhere along the way. Many times uh, we've had that. We see that in David's life, didn't we, with his great fall, particularly things that were happening probably in his mind at that time and his eyes. We all know the dangers of that. But this, uh, here he says he's meditating. The way to counter that is to meditate on the greatness of God, on the things he's done, on his wonderful word, and on and on. Let's look at verse 6. It says, Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. So it's not just David here speaking in the first person. He says, Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. He's basically saying, One day all men are going to be giving praise to the Most High. And that's a, for me, that's a thought. We're about to see how this happens by the end of the book of Revelation. We'll be dealing with this. Romans chapter 11, verse 14. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. And think what a radical difference the world will be when it is like that. You can't really hardly imagine it. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and they will tell of your greatness. Now, I like that little phrase. That stood out to me a lot as I was studying this. It reminded me of one of those great old hymns. Most of you probably know it from school assemblies, How Great Thou Art. This was actually voted Britain's second most popular, no, Britain's favourite hymn, uh, and the world's second most popular hymn of all time. And Christianity Today did that survey. Britain's second most favourite hymn, the world's. No, Britain's first favourite hymn, sorry, the world's second most favourite hymn. I didn't see what the first was, actually. But let me just read to you a couple of the words from this, because it gives us an idea. I think when he says, men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and tell of your greatness, that can be speaking about his acts of power in creation. And this is what this song often does. He says, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hand hath made, I see the stars, the rolling thunder, the power throughout the universe displayed, then sings my soul, my saviour God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. And you all know that, you all know the refrain there, it goes on and on. But the simple yet kind of beautiful origins of this song really express, I believe, what we're reading about here in the Psalm of David. I'll read to you the uh, description by the author. It was written by a man named Carl Boberg in 1985, and it was from a poem originally just simply called O Great God. And he recounts what moved him to write it. He says, it was the time of year when everything seemed to be in its richest colouring. The birds were singing in trees and everywhere it was very warm. 
A thunderstorm appeared on the horizon, and soon there was thunder and lightning, and we had to hurry to shelter. But the storm was soon over, and the clear sky appeared. And when I came home, I opened my window towards the sea. And there, evidently, had been a funeral, and the bells were playing the tune of when eternity's clock calls my saved soul to its Sabbath rest. And that evening, meditating on all these things, I wrote the song, O Great God, which is How Great Thou Art, which has went on to be that song. And for actually like a hundred years, it pretty much was an unknown song. It didn't really exist in any particular hymnals or anything like that. And then in the 1950s, Billy Graham, as he was going around the real kind of height of the Billy Graham Crusades, he, he stumbled upon this song. I forget the whole story where he was, but he loved it. And he had his musicians put it to music. And thus, that's why it became so popular because of those Billy Graham Crusades. And he said this of this song, he said, the reason I like how great thou art is because it glorifies God and it turns Christians' eyes towards God rather than upon themselves. I use it as often as possible because it is a God-honoring song. And that just reminds me that the way he summarizes that of pretty much what we're seeing and what I was saying there about David, that he's using these things to meditate on. It turns your hearts and your minds towards God and you meditate and you think on these things and you come away from a time like that and you simply declare how great is God. Your soul sings, your heart overflows. And the next line in this verse is that same concept. It says, they shall eagerly utter. Now the word there is quite unusual in Hebrew. It's a word that's actually used to describe gushing water. So the, when it says they shall eagerly utter, the idea is imagine a water fire hydrant bursting forth, something like that. You've all seen that probably in TV. It's that, just that bursting forth of water. That means the praise was that intense, it was passionate, it was an overflow of the thankful heart, it was spontaneous and it was pretty constant. And I think that's the same thing, then sings my soul, my saviour God to thee. After meditating on the wonders of God, then sings your soul. And that's the idea that's being depicted here in this psalm. It's a wonderful picture. Let's look at verse 8. It says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So now his praise turns to specifics to do with God's attributes and character. Previously, it's been his majesty, his glory, his power, his wonderful acts, but now it changes slightly to his attributes and character. And I believe in so doing, he echoes the self-revelation that Yahweh gave uh, to Moses. You might recognize that verse 8 there. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. That's almost a direct quotation from the book of Exodus. Exodus 34, verse 6, do you remember the time Moses was in the mountain, hid in the cleft of the rock? And it says, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Almost word for word, not quite, but slight difference. But that's, I think, where he's getting there. And that was a very... Um, important text in the biblical tradition. We find it often repeated by the prophets. So here we have not just the splendor and majesty, we have now the graciousness, the mercifulness, and the loving kindness of God. Because one without the other is no good at all. You could say an evil king could be very glorious in his splendor if he has all the right things. Um, 
you know, it's not worthy of praise unless it is coupled with the grace, the mercy, and the loving kindness of God. And those two things together are why I believe he is the great God whose greatness is unsearchable. It says, then they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom, verse 11, and talk of your power. They are so concerned with the king and with his rule that they are constantly speaking of the things of God. And how do you make sure you're constantly speaking of the things of God? I believe you have to be constantly meditating on the word of God. You have to be constantly filling your mind with the things of God if you want them to come out into your life to be speaking the things of God. And I think that's, you know, those who are not spending time doing that will probably not have much to say, maybe not much accurate to say about the Lord. But those of us who are doing that and hopefully we're all doing that in some way or another it'll look different for different people don't misunderstand me but that's how we fill our hearts with the lord and what comes out of the mouth as jesus said is often an overflow of the heart so we want to make sure our hearts are filled with the lord it says his power i'll speak of your power and ultimately it's for me i find it a wonderful thought that this king is the most powerful king that god is supreme in his power and everything else every powerful thing that we see on this world is just nothing compared he created it all just with the very words and he said the word his creative word is what created everything and i like this when you think of it in the concept of a king every king that we've known on earth pretty much if you go back through history at some point his empire has fallen his kingdom has been dispossessed someone has challenged him for the throne or he's turned out to be a despot whatever it may be this is the king loving gracious merciful the most powerful king, there'll be no one to challenge him when he sits on this throne. When he comes back in his kingdom, touches down on this earth, sets up his messianic kingdom and moving on into the eternal state and that kingdom, there will be no challenges to his throne other than what he has allowed. For now, he allows that. He's doing a different mission right now. He's calling people out. He's saving people right now. That's a slightly different thing. The kingdom will be one where the glory of the Lord is displayed across the globe it says and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom and this is again quoting from many different places in the old testament prophets habakkuk 2:14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover the sea i just don't know what that will be like I, I, you try and think about what this is actually describing it's very hard to imagine really but the only thing i can say is it kind of is like what we've seen with david he's filling his heart and his mind with the word of God, meditating on God, and thus he is speaking and praising God, and thus he is known afar for being someone who does that. If you imagine that in a global context, this is a time when the king of all kings will be on the earth. People will be praising him on the earth in Jerusalem, and thus I think it will be all around the world. People will be traveling up to hear him, to praise him, to give worship to him, to give thanks to him. That is what it is, will be like in some ways for the knowledge of the glory of the Lord to cover the entire globe. Again, very hard to fathom. It says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. This kingdom will never end. This is, again, very similar to some text we find in the book of Daniel. You remember the famous prophecies of Daniel, the visions that they had about the different world empires that will come, Babylonia, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And then in the end of that vision, it says, Daniel 2.44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people, and it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. 
And I see David echoing that sentiment there when he says your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Yes, he's always the Lord, even whilst people are challenging him now. One day, though, he will make sure that there is no challenge in that sense. All the kingdoms of men will perish and all that will remain is the king of kings and his throne. And for me, that's when all ultimate justice, ultimate righteousness, the full display of his character and glory is displayed in the earth. That's what Habakkuk means when he says the knowledge of the Lord will cover the world like the waters cover the sea. It's just a wonderful description of what our God will do in the future. And I'll just remind you, one of the blessings that we have is that we share in that future. It's a future we cannot really, I I don't believe, get our heads around to comprehend what it's actually saying. It's one of the things that he gifted us out of his grace when he joined us into the body of Christ. And like we read in those early letters to Revelation, he promised that we would sit on those thrones and rule with him in these days. Nothing that we deserve, a sheer act of his grace. And thus David says every morning when he wakes up, because I'm blessed, I'm going to give you thanks. If you think you want to know how you're blessed, it doesn't matter if you're living in terrible conditions, if you're over in a part of the world where you're being persecuted for your faith. If you are a blood-bought believer, that is your future and that is your destiny. And that's pretty amazing, really, when you actually understand that it's going to be a reality one day. Let's look at verse 14. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. And you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. So I believe what he's really explaining here is now we see those attributes that he mentioned in the previous stanza, how they practically play out in this world. The idea here is that God is a provider and God is a sustainer of his people. Let's just go straight on and read the next few verses too. Let's just read to the end actually. It says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. So now we see more qualities of the Lord expressed by David. He is righteous and he is kind. And it's related, notice, to his actions, his ways and his deeds. So these are how his attributes relate to what he does. This whole psalm now, as we've just reached the end of this psalm, you may picked up on the fact that he is just piling reason upon reason upon reason as to why we should be praising God with our lives. I believe he could have gone on much more. These last three verses I find are really interesting. In verse 18 to 20, we get a lovely description of the attitude of God's people. Who are God's people? You want to know by their actions? Verse 18, they're those who call upon him. Verse 19, they're those who fear him. And verse 20, they're those who love him. And I believe David fits that category here. May we all fit that category too. Call upon him, we fear him. That means we have awe and respect. We understand the greatness of God, but yet we also love him because he first loved us. That's how the gospel message goes. Now we also get to see what God does for those same people in these same two verses too. It says he is near to those people who call on him. Near is given the idea of he is ready to respond as his people call upon him. Verse 19, it says he will fulfill their desire. Makes me think of that verse there, to be frank. And verse 20, uh, verse 19, it also says he will hear their cry and he will save them. And there's verse 20, he will also keep them. So for those who call upon him, those who fear him and those who love him, he's near to you, he will fulfill your desires, 
He will cry, he will hear your cry, he will save you, and thus he will also keep you until the day of redemption. Which is wonderful. And then look how he ends it. After all of that, he says, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. And that is David's closing doxology to the book of Psalms, really. We're going to have five more psalms, but this is the last one here that we see like this of David. And what a wonderful psalm it is. After extolling God as king, a God whose greatness is unsearchable, who is glorious in splendor and majesty, whose works are wonderful and awesome, whose power evokes the praise of men, who is abundantly good, righteous, gracious, merciful, full of loving kindness, whose kingdom will endure forever, who sustains the weak, raises the lowly, provides and satisfies for his people, is kind in all his ways and near to those who call. After all of that, what else can he do but affirm that his mouth will always be used to speak praises to such a wonderful God? And that one day, he even says, all flesh will do the same. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.